and welcome back to episode five of the Fide podcast with no regular name. Today we have a very special guest. We're going to be joined by one of the most prominent chess coaches in the world at the moment. It's Grandmaster Ramesh and also Peter Heinenius. So Ramesh, how are you today? Yeah, I'm good, Michael. Uh, nice to be on this show. And hello, Peter. Hi, thanks for coming. Thanks. So today we're going to do a bit of an interview. We're going to talk about, you know, different things, aspects around chess coaching. You've both been interviewed many times before about, you know, your your lives and what you do. Uh, but the first thing I wanted to start with is, uh, even though we say you're both chess coaches, uh, I think you probably have quite different roles as chess coaches. And I wanted to start off by asking you, Ramesh, like, on a kind of on a regular day, what is your life like as a chess coach? What's your kind of regular routine? Yeah, it's uh, evolving, I should say. But uh, for uh, most part of my career as a coach, uh, bearing the last uh, one year or so, it's like I'd start my lessons at uh, five in the morning. And because I have some students in the US for whom it is evening, and it is morning in India. So I start my classes uh, quite early. And it goes probably like five to eight, like this. And then uh, I have a couple of hours break. And then uh, the players from uh, all over India, they come to Chennai to our place. And we have some training sessions. Probably it will be like uh, 9.30 to 1.30. And then uh, then we'll have an hour's break. Then a different group comes and two to five, something like this. And sometimes uh, some evening sessions thrown in as well, 5.30, 7.30. So it's like probably anywhere from 10 to 14 hours of training. Okay, wow. That is a, that is extremely different from Peter's yeah. usual schedule, which is to get up in the morning, play some golf. Oh, sorry. <laughs> get up in the morning, he tweets at Fide. Then he plays golf. Then he tweets at Fide from the golf course. Then he uh, sends Magnus a file of some openings and yeah, then just relaxes for the rest of the day, I think. Something like that. I mean, yeah, it's true. I mean, well, my situation is completely different. For the last 15 years, um, I've basically been working for just one person uh, at the time, first Vichy and then Magnus. And I think um, earlier this year, I, I met with Ramesh at a training camp in Norway. Um, it was very interesting to, to talk and compare some notes. But of course, our situations are extremely difficult, uh, different. And maybe... Also, our philosophies are rather, I mean, I don't really have a, a philosophy, but I noticed at this training camp that uh, Ramesh, basically, he was willing to do a lesson all the time, had so much ready material, while I have barely given a lesson in five years. It was very un unusual for me. So I thought that while we are both chess coaches, there's also very uh, different uh, so, very huge differences in a way. But, well, you're right. My job is more to think of opening ideas, concepts. Today, I mean, Magnus is actually playing in Toronto uh, sort of later tonight. So I was actually working at some kind of file before, but I still find time to do a podcast with you guys. I will I will sort of finish off the job. So it is extremely different in, in a way. And it's uh, well, it's very, I'm very curious to hear about Ramesh, how he has, well, he gets to form players very early and very successfully. I hope it's going to be interesting for the listeners. Yeah, so, I mean, my, my second question was going to be, is it easier being a second than a trainer? But I guess that's pretty much answered itself already. <laughs> 
Well, it's different, but my feeling is also, Ramesh, you also a second uh, at times, right? Yeah. As I mentioned, uh, my schedule has been evolving uh, during the last uh, one or two years. Uh, as you might have noticed, Pragnananda uh, has uh, grown phenomenally into a, in the last couple of years, he has grown much faster than we anticipated. And he's in a completely different league. And I'm, as a trainer, I'm also trying to adapt uh, my methodologies and also to be still relevant uh, in his career. And Peter has a uh, lot of experience at this level. So I'm very curious to know how to handle players at this level. So I'm also here to learn from Peter. Well, <laughs> let, let me ask first, how is the... It sounds wrong, but the power relationship with uh, your students and with Prakdananda especially. I mean, who is the boss? I mean, for me, it's clear. I worked with Vichy, I worked with Magnus. I'm not there to tell them how to do. I'm more there to supplement and inflict their wishes. But you've worked with uh, Prak since he was extremely young. It must yeah. be strange. Actually, it's a natural evolution, I would say. It's uh, more like a father-son relationship as well in some aspects because I have been working with him since he was like seven and a half years old. So I still remember him as a very small kid <laughs> with whom I have played a hide-and-seek <laughs> more <laughs> as well. So when uh, in India, the first uh, cultural difference I would say is like uh, the teachers or the professors, they are uh, or coaches, whatever term we want to use. Uh, they are uh, in general... Uh, considered as a respectful profession and they need to be respected. So typically in India, uh, the students call their teachers as sir with a surname. Yeah, so that's very common. So it's not a friend kind of relationship. So that is always that looking up to kind of relationship from the students uh, to the, towards the teacher. And uh, in the last few years, uh, okay, so probably like uh, even five years ago, he has become much, much uh, stronger than me. Uh, in every aspect of chess. So uh, my role is uh, trying to understand uh, his areas, but probably will be coming to this later. As far as the relationship goes, uh, like we are still having a training camp now for the candidates. We have started our preparation and uh, we, j we are having the lunch break now. And uh, so for me, like uh, he still gives a lot of value to my opinions on many aspects of chess, uh, but uh, technically uh, chess strength-wise he is much stronger than me, so I usually take the help of the engines and uh, basically I try to make him go through difficult situations or tough situations and handle them. So that way I'm trying to contribute, but he still listens to my opinion about um, how I view uh, the strength of the other players, strengths and weaknesses, how do we identify work and base our strategies. In all this, he still uh, listens to me. Yeah, uh, now we are becoming more of uh, friends. Yeah, it's an evolving relationship, I would say. Yeah, that's really interesting. And also, when so when you started coaching, uh, I guess you had never really worked with a player of Pragnananda's level that he is now. So that must have been like quite a. A steep learning curve for you because like the you know the the things that you have to do to work with a 2700 player i guess are quite different from someone who's you know lower rated than yourself yeah 
but the thing is like i also work with a uh, few other players i'm not sure uh, how well the chess world knows them for example like uh, arvind chiraburam or kartik and murli they are all around uh, 2620 to 2650 level mm-hmm. and i also worked with uh, the indian team for the last uh, 12 years where uh, most of the top players of the india been who are all above 2700 been there so a lot of experience working with them uh, we have had many training camps before the olympiads so mm-hmm. i hope i'm a quick learner myself and i'm uh, and with the help of technology it's much easier to uh, deliver what they demand i mean you have managed to grow a lot of uh, incredible uh, strong players i mean something that we don't really see in in europe well what is the secret i mean is it a numbers game simply there are so many talents in india that the best will be or is it uh, work ethics from you work ethics from them how do you see this uh, boom happening no i don't see it as a number game it's not like uh, india suddenly got a huge population in the last 5 or 10 years it was always there the uh, big numbers were always there so i don't think it's a number game uh, it's basically a lot of things uh, one thing i would say is like uh, when i decided to become a full time trainer around 17 18 years ago uh, the first thing i did is like stop reading chess books Uh, because uh, as a player i have read a lot of chess books and uh, eventually i realized like uh, uh, the books are written by humans and uh, most of the things they write about is their uh, personal opinion and that's how they look at things and they bring it on the book so i wanted to first and uh, as a player i have gone through many difficult situations myself and for many such situations i did not know what to do uh, frankly i was uh, feeling helpless and i did not know how to approach these issues and i did not know whether my perceptions about these issues were uh, right or wrong so it was very unclear situation and when i decided to become a trainer i saw that uh, everyone around has similar issues and they all just have opinions on various factors for example like uh, if someone is playing very quickly and let's say let's imagine a situation if a young child comes out of the playing hall after 10 minutes of the games begin and uh, told the parents i have lost this game then mostly the parents will say like you don't have the patience or uh, you're not serious about the game you're playing too fast so they can be easily judged now imagine if the child was young anand he was incredibly fast right so <laughs> for many issues we really don't know uh, whether something is good or right uh, good or wrong uh, so i decided to first hand experience my students issues and uh, i give a lot of importance to the psychological aspect uh, so how i see is uh, the decisions we take over the board the moves we play they are the outcome of a certain thinking process in our head so there is a there's sort of things happening in our head before a move is made and i try to focus on those aspects what's the kind of thinking process they go through and also how the personality of the player involved influences those decisions for example if uh, some players naturally they don't like to play, go for complications or take risk by nature and there are many who will will be willingly going for risk risky situations and so on so how this uh, can be can these be influenced uh, so i believe like uh, chess is a learnable game and uh, everything can be learned in chess but when we all begin we have certain strengths and i wouldn't call weaknesses uh, but in some areas we are not good 
because i believe weaknesses uh, appear much later it's like we start with a blank slate you can say and then we start filling it up and some areas are not filled and those become our weak areas eventually so we have some strengths and uh, many areas where we are not good at and then it's about the journey is about how we on one side we grow in the areas we feel comfortable and good at and on the other side how we effectively we learn the areas uh, which we don't like for example some players especially players who like to attack they don't like to go to end game very often or play close positions let's say now can this be learned can this be taught so this is uh, basically uh, my whole journey as a trainer is about can things which we are not good at which we don't like can we still learn them and as a trainer can i effectively teach them so a lot of things i would like to 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 ask about here i've almost forgotten but <laughs> well i i worked with with wishy and uh, well you talk about the importance of uh, psychological aspects and such but how do you talk with players about that because my feeling is generally people don't really like to to talk uh, about such things i mean i'm generally curious that you actually get to have conversations with your players about things that must be extremely uncomfortable for them i mean i would just uh, generally avoid it but you seem to to actually go for that how does that pan out yeah uh, one thing i realized is that like, uh, the last couple of years i have been uh, working uh, more with players in the west uh, i'm coming very often to norway i'm working with some players there and i also travel i have some uh, other students in rest of the europe and many students in the us as well so there is a clear dis- uh, this difference is very visible with the indian players it's very natural to have these kind of conversations they actually enjoy these conversations talking about uh, the in my view these are the critical issues uh, so the way i see is like there are many players who are at the top let's say uh, over 60 2600 let's say if we consider them very strong then uh, we have probably around 200 or 250 players in the world who have crossed this 2600 barrier and uh, maybe 99. 9% of the players have not even reached uh, over 2000 probably right mm-hmm. the number is extremely less the majority of them have not even crossed to 2000 and there is a very small group who has crossed 2600 who have excelled so uh, and i think like it is so it is very clear it is not like chess is such a difficult game that only very few can master Uh, how i see is like most of us have not learned to address the critical issues uh, when i talk with uh, many players from the west uh, the impression i get is like most of them believe those who are good at are extremely talented and those who are not doing well they are not talented something like this so mm-hmm. i strongly believe uh, chess can be learned in a more efficient manner and i believe like with proper training most of us can become grandmasters we don't need special talent and i believe the special talent comes in kicks in only at two phases one at the beginning of the career when we are introduced to chess some children it just comes naturally but after that let's say from around 1400 to becoming a grandmaster it is less to do with the talent but more to do with uh, the mental toughness the how they learn the game the work ethics the discipline and so on so if we can and these are all something that can be learned uh, hard work can be learned mental toughness can be learned 
and uh, it is possible if we have some basic talent most of us can become grandmasters and uh, in my humble opinion i have shown it in real life as well so i have worked with many young children and they have become grandmasters so i think chess can be properly taught and properly learned and one missing aspect is the psychology so we are just looking at this uh, small number of uh, over 2600 who have excelled and uh, they have found these uh, important issues it has uh, some of they have learned these things and most others have not learned these things that's why they are not turning up very strong eventually but in the west as you mentioned it's not easy to have this kind of conversation but uh, i strongly believe like this conversation should be had so when i work with the students from the west i tell them i'm coming from a different background and for me these are critical issues as well and i recently worked with a player from the west who is a grandmaster about 2600 and uh, we had a five day training camp and for uh, three three and a half days we did not see chess at all we were just discussing all this psychological issues yeah that's that's really really interesting and like so you said that you think anyone can become a grandmaster does that apply even to like people who learn chess as an adult like someone who maybe picks up the game in their 20s uh, i think uh, okay so first thing uh, i'm not very qualified to talk about this because i have not uh, worked much with the players over 20 Uh, for the first time i have had i have mm-hmm. done some experiments i worked with uh, players over 50 over 60 over 40 over 30 uh, and i tried to help them but uh, i was not uh, very effective with uh, adult learners so for me i believe the most of the the basis formed when the when we are very young so probably the best uh, the main uh, philosophies of the game the work ethics uh, what we think about uh, the important issues in chess they are all formed at a very young age i believe probably between mm-hmm. 8 to 14 or so and uh, if we have a very strong base at this time the learning can happen uh, seamlessly on top of that okay i mean i have basically been traveling around telling the story about well magnus becoming great based on the scandinavian concept in terms of that uh, for instance when i was traveling him to the candidates tournament i forgot if he was 14 perhaps his dad was telling me okay chess magnus does for fun if he doesn't want to work on chess doesn't want to prepare on chess you're not allowed to push him i was in siberia with him for like three three weeks as his second and this was basically the rule and this has basically been the rules ever since that Well, he does it voluntarily and that can be a world championship match or whatever. We do it on his premises and I'm not allowed to push him one bit. No, I'm just curious that it's it is so so different. I mean, how do would you see that from from your perspective? Yeah, so this also I'm very familiar this kind of uh, thinking process that uh, I also feel like uh, many in the west see that uh, children should be taught just the way they want to be taught and we cannot uh, push them. but uh, the word push can have a negative connotation as well isn't it it's like you are doing something against their uh, wish or uh, even if they want it maybe it is not uh, good for them so yeah i understand this uh, reservation and that is probably in my view one of the reason why uh, many strong players have not come 
uh, few good play young players coming up but uh, i believe uh, in india like how to say we value hard work as a virtue so hard work is not something uh, we look at it uh, with a negative connotation it's we don't see it as pushing the child uh, for example let's say uh, in the case of prag vaishali or arvind or many of the kids i have worked with they genuinely love chess chess makes them happy and uh, so they want to uh, learn more and it is coming from their side and uh, i am trying to meet their demands as well as i can and uh, spending lot of hours like prag when he was young he used to spend uh, probably 8 6 to 8 hours on uh, chess practice even when he was like a 8 year old child and uh, it was not because uh, i was pushing him to do so but he just felt like okay this is what his life is meant to be it just uh, came naturally to him so uh, i believe like uh, if someone wants to be a specialist we have to spend invest time in that activity that's how i see uh, if someone is very ambitious but doesn't want to invest the required amount of effort then it's just a wishful thinking and that's what usually happens with many everyone wants to be a world champion or a grandmaster but uh, they probably invested 10 or 20% of the effort they should be so i just believe like if the ambition is high uh, pro- uh, proportionately the work we do should be should be matching mm-hmm. yeah that makes a lot of sense one of the questions i wanted to ask is about actually playing chess as a coach and it, i think like we have this kind of unusual thing in chess compared to other sports whereas that a lot of uh, chess coaches are still either active or semi active players and i wondered like do you think there's a benefit to the coach continuing their playing career or do you think it's you know to just keep in touch with the game to kind of be more more active and you know have a a kind of deeper connection with what the students are going through at the time or do you think it's better that like in other sports which would be the norm the norm is that the coach is you know retired or just doesn't play chess anymore i wonder how you feel about that yeah okay so my personal opinion on this issue i have not been uh, i retired from chess in 2008 so that's like 15 years okay. i have not uh, i played probably one or two tournaments since then so you can say i have not played chess uh, in the last 15 years and uh, mm-hmm. here there could be an issue because uh, i may be outdated in my uh, perception of things uh, i may have uh, dinosaur era convictions about many aspects of the game how chess should be learned and played and so on and uh, also when you don't play in tournaments your uh, chess thinking skills are greatly affected uh, like for example calculation this is a first casualty um but uh, for me like uh, chess training is a full time job that's how i look at it and uh, we have to really invest a lot of time um uh, to be a good trainer so i talk a lot with uh, the students why they are doing what they are doing what is the thought process behind and i'm also learning in the process but i think uh, without the computer i'll be a very bad trainer Uh, especially in giving positions uh, to give uh, good positions on variety of topics uh, without the computers i'll be totally helpless but uh, 
since that is taken care of, I can uh, get very difficult positions for any level of player um, and really make them work hard in various aspects of the game. So, because of that, uh, it makes me believe like uh, a trainer should be focusing on uh, being a trainer because uh, when you are a player, your concern is about yourself. You are wondering about your performance as well. But when you are a trainer, your concern is more outward looking. You are looking at the students, what they are going through, and then you try to help them in a more efficient way. So this is a totally different uh, perceptions. And when we are a full-time trainer, we are able to fully focus on uh, what our students are going through. And uh, in my case, it has helped me a lot, I would say. Mm -hmm. I have two questions. One of them is that, well, I generally agree fully. But the only thing that I felt when I completely quit chess and then played one tournament again was that I had forgotten how stressful it is being a chess player emotionally before the game. How is that for you? I mean, uh, do you still understand how stressed your your, your students are or you, you also tend to forget that? No, uh, I fully realize. Uh, I think like uh, one of the reasons I pay a lot of attention to the psychological aspects of the game is simply because I understand how much stress the players go through. And uh, I've visited uh, many tournaments with my students and I'm watching them play, take decisions, uh, suffer to variety of results and so on. So that is precisely why I feel uh, not playing helps me because I've been a player for a few many years and uh, I've gone through those emotions myself. And uh, I'm in a better position to relate to the kind of pressures they go through. So I can uh, give uh, suggestions objectively. I'm not emotionally involved like a doctor. Uh, he doesn't have to go through the stomach pain himself to treat a patient with a stomach pain. Uh, he, he knows what it is uh, and uh, he can be very objective in his suggestions. And my second question is, well, you talk about giving students positions. What is your aim? Is your aim to, let's say, transfer knowledge in terms of this is an interesting positional theme? Or are you more trying to present them with a challenge they have to solve in order to more train their brain? Or is it always an overlap? Yeah, so basically, like, uh, how I feel is like, uh, what is the objective of a player? Uh, it doesn't matter what the aim is. We want to become a world champion or we want to become a grandmaster or maybe reach 2200. It doesn't really matter. We can have any aim and uh, our aim is to achieve that. And how do we do that? By playing games, at least meeting that uh, requirement. If I want to become a 2200, at least I should play like a 2200. There's a good chance my rating will also reflect it. So I have to... Basically, like I have to play a game at a certain level. That means I have to take decisions at a certain level. That means I have to, it comes down to analyzing. So the quality of the analysis, it should keep getting better and better to meet my aim. So the quality of the analysis, I believe, is the key. Now, the quality of analysis in what type of position? In uh, usually what is happening with most players, they stick to their strengths. If I believe I'm an attacking player, then I just work a lot on attacking areas, attacking positions, and uh, improve my attacking skills, calculation skills, sacrificing skills, and so on. 
but usually with most of the players they completely ignore their end games their positional understanding their defensive skills what if the tables are turned our opponent is attacking us and so on so there are many areas uh, which they completely ignore for the simple fact that they form an opinion that they belong to one category so similarly what happens with many young players they think they are positional players and then they simply assume they cannot be good attacking players they cannot sacrifice they cannot evaluate those positions well so they kind of give up once they identify themselves to one category or the other so i when i work with players i try to tell them you may start at different points but what is important is eventually we should become an universal player who's good at everything that is our target that means i have to learn to analyze well in all kinds of situations especially in situation so three different types of situations we can say one situations i am familiar and comfortable with that makes me comfortable and i am familiar so i'll be in a different mindset when i'm analyzing those positions and i'll be in a different mindset when the position is very uncomfortable for me or i'm not familiar so in those situations our analytical skills usually drop drastically so uh training i feel should happen in all these three areas one where they are familiar and comfortable and especially areas which make them very uncomfortable where they feel incapable i am not good in these areas so we have to make them good and confident in those areas as well so basically uh trying to teach them to analyze in all kinds of situations so i try to feed them positions initially to make them comfortable give them positions where they feel comfortable and familiar and gradually make it more and more difficult in those areas so they become uh, good in handling very difficult situations in their core areas and then we start working on areas that makes them very uncomfortable by giving them easy positions and when they are able to solve them gain confidence gradually raise the level of difficulty and make them good eventually in those areas as well yeah that's yeah peter i wanted to ask you actually about this so like over the past few years like magnus's style i think is maybe changed a bit where particularly in the run where he he went you know 110 games unbeaten or something like that he actually seemed to play quite a lot of sharper positions than he had in the past and he was winning a lot of games with black so was that like a conscious decision for him to go for more complex positions because he found it more interesting than you know the kind of the positions we stereotypically associate Magnus with, and like, were you involved with that? I I think so. Yes, I think it was a somewhat conscious choice to, I mean, well, be more universal, and also maybe you could also see it as an involvement of the opponents that they started understanding that. Well, Magnus would do certain things to them, let's say beat them in the end game, whatever he, he's famous for these kind of things. And that, well, also, well, one has to respect the opponents. They are extremely bright guys as well. So they would adapt to this strategy. And I think we felt that, um, well, they might even start bluffing that they would, you know, give Magnus some objective chances that he wouldn't take because he will go into his areas. And, um, well, we thought it's important to make statements in terms of, well, Magnus is universal and that he can punish them because, 
well, we cannot allow them to bluff in terms of, um, well, they will avoid end games because they know, okay, we can give Magnus attacking chances. He's not going to take them. Of course, we need to make a statement that, well, he's capable of doing that. I mean, it's like sometimes they say in tennis that, uh, well, if your forehand is best, you need to improve your backhand in order to play your forehand more in a way. And, uh, well, we felt that Magnus should be more rounded like that. But I think also... I mean, we just got caught up in the process and started enjoying it in a, in a, in a way. And I think, well, Magnus generally feel, okay, life should be interesting. He should be capable of playing uh, everything. And I mean, I think there are still stylistic choices that fit Magnus better than others. But um, I mean, you know, for instance, well, he played the Sicilian against Caruana in a World Championship match. If that was bright, I don't know. It was incredibly interesting, at least, uh, right? And um, I think also... If you want to have a very long career being the best, you also need to, I mean, do certain things. So at least Magnus needs to do it. Maybe Kasparov could just be, you know, his uh, sort of same self all the time because maybe the, the idea of winning was enough for him. But I thought for Magnus, he probably wanted some kind of other other development. But, well, it's something that we spoke about and tried to aim for, but in I mean, well, what Ramis describes is incredibly systematical work where, okay, I want to improve these things. Uh, the player says they have very open discussions about it. Ramesh will find positions, they will try to solve them, we will see how they react. It sounds in a more scientific way, while mine would more be, okay, you know, well, in this prep, I would say, maybe you go in this direction, look at these games a bit. It's, I mean, no, it's clear what Ramesh does reminds me of university in sense of uh, high level of material i mean not like uh, a high school where you are just teaching the, the the students but more that there is a lot of interactions uh, with them there while magnus is uh, to say that he's like an artist is a bit too strong but it's not far off in the way that it's a more cre- creative and random process i, I almost wanted to ask ramesh that um, well when we talk about the absolute best players in the world you said that well, you think hard work is defining, not necessarily talent. Well, how do you see the best players? I mean, Magnus, Caruana, Ding, uh, well, Nakamura. How do you see the mix of talent and, and, and hard work there? Yeah, so hard work, uh, uh, the way I understand uh, hard work uh, is probably slightly different from what most of us uh, equate to. So most of us think, uh, believe hard work is more work. So... I try to emphasize this uh, to young children. So basically, like uh, I try to, I believe there are certain qualities uh, which will help us in becoming strong players, and uh, these qualities are better uh, imbibed at a young age. So I talk about all these qualities, explain them in very clear terms, which they can relate to. So what I normally do, let's say, if I want to explain hard work to my students, I will take two pawns and then say I want to build my biceps, and I start. Uh, doing like this <laughs> with the pawns and I say like if I'm going to do this for the next 10 hours and for the next 5 years will I be building some uh, significant biceps every child will say no uh, then I say am I not working hard I'm doing this for 10, 10 hours a day uh, so it's a lot of work but it's not hard work and then I say like let's say if I try to push this building push this wall and then I put a lot of effort in trying to push the wall Nothing happens. The building just stays there. But if I do this for maybe 20 seconds, maybe I'll put some biceps uh, in this 20 seconds. And if I do this every day, I will start putting 
muscles. So then I asked the kids, like, what do you learn? So this 10 hours of effort is hard work or this 20 seconds of effort. So basically the point is, uh, what I'm trying to make is, uh, one, hard work is about the intensity of the effort. So if I'm going to see chess for one hour, I can eat popcorn, listen to music, watch a movie, and also see chess. This is also possible. So the, here the effort is quite casual. Uh, but when I am fully involved in that activity, uh, then I believe that is hard work. So one, I am fully involved in what I am doing. And two, I am putting my best effort into that activity. Uh, then I believe it is hard work. So it's not the quantity alone. Quantity also makes a difference. Uh, the longer we spend time with chess, more we can uh, uh, cover in such long hours. But I give more emphasis on uh, the quantity aspect. And the second I would say is uh, hard work is most of us, as I mentioned earlier, we prefer to work on things that make that we feel comfortable and we like. But uh, hard work is also coming out of your comfort zone and uh, putting a good effort in learning things that does not come easily to us. So there are some things that will not come easily to me. And I have to put a very good quality of effort and time into mastering those areas as well. So this is how I see hard work. So from this aspect, all the successful people, like I said, uh, the 200 or odd players, let's say about 2,600, they have in their own way learned these things and they have been applying. And that's why I believe they are all strong. And more efficiently they do this, uh, the higher they grow. And there are other aspects as well. I have seen many 2650 players who are very insecure uh, when they compare themselves with players about 2750, let's say, and then they feel I'm not good enough. So these kind of issues are there with uh, many players. And uh, recently I came to know that many 2700 players also feel have these some of these uh, insecurities. So on the other side, one is about the work ethics. On the other side is about... Uh, how we, one, learn to deal with these insecurities, lack of confidence, or uh, uh, low self-esteem issues. And the other is how we can uh, avoid getting in this mess altogether. So from young age, it is possible to teach an alternative way of looking at things so that these issues don't crop up so easily. So, so I mean, well... You're basically saying, I mean, someone can be working 14 hours a day, clicking with the computer, looking at openings. That is not hard work by definition. That's just spending no. a lot of time. Yeah, what yeah. you say is hard work is that, well, you know that you have some issues that are uncomfortable for you. For instance, I don't dare play the Sicilian. I try to make too many quick draws and that I address these issues and I try to do something proper. Around. That is hard work. Or how should I understand? That is one, of, one aspect of the hard work. Uh, but the thing is, like, uh, now again, uh, one of the issues is, like, whenever I'm going to confront uncomfortable or unfamiliar areas, I my mind needs to be good. For example, usually people do this when they have a bad tournament, when they have get bad results. They try to address their weak areas. But probably that is not a good time because we are already pessimistic and not receptive. When we are in a negative frame of mind, we are not receptive to changes. We will want to stick to our strength areas. We wouldn't want to try new things or take risks. So, But when we are in good form, when we are believing in ourselves, 
then we are more open minded i would say that is a good time uh, to address our uh, problem areas so uh, when we are in struggling with some issue if the form is good it's better to directly address it if our mind is not in good form not in good shape if you are pessimistic or lacking confidence it's better not to worry about the, what we are doing wrong it's better to stick to what we are doing well and uh, try to do it well and once we gain the confidence and the form then we have to address the difficult areas so the timing also in my view is important can i ask something yeah well but i mean i thought what you talk about is long term things how do you find the confidence to well that your student will not kick you away because you're trying to do some very long term thing and he loses the next game and um well i mean well friends now you're training for the candidates tournament i assume the goal is that you want to perform in four, four months not that you want to build yourself strength wise for in in five years or, or something like this i mean okay <laughs> so, <laughs> so i so i always tell my students like uh, we are in this for long term and i generally don't work with players who are in this for short term so like uh, many players come to me and say like okay i have the national championship coming in two months can we start working i usually say no i don't believe in uh, working in short term uh, so even uh, when prag qualified for the candidates i told like okay candidates is just uh, one stop in the journey so it's like we are going from uh, point a to point z this is probably i don't know maybe f or g or h whatever so candidates is in itself a very important milestone an important tournament but uh, i don't think we are uh, preparing for the candidates per se and uh, we are still trying to work on a long term basis so basically i feel like we have to keep building our strengths and wherever we have developed weaknesses over the years try to address them at the right moment in the right way and so our aim is simply growing uh, how i see chess journey is like a small plant trying to become a big tree so we don't really know when the tree has uh, fully grown so we are just still uh, trying to grow and grow and grow and let's see how long we can grow <laughs> so that's the <laughs> approach we are taking but sorry for 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 asking here again but well the impression i get is almost like i mean well no it's like there is zero fear in you of uh, losing your job as far as i can hear i mean like for instance well for a world i mean i worked with wishy for a long time but you will always think okay if this world match championship match uh, goes wrong it's over and maybe that's how it should be i mean for me it almost sounds like you are choosing who to teach rather than you are afraid of losing a, a student and there's a lot of confidence and trust there which i really like but i mean do so you have a 10 year contract or you just well you guys trust each other how does that work no it's like uh, i think uh, trust should be earned uh, not uh, it should be deserved uh, so i tell my students is like uh, for me my uh, biggest aim is my student should feel there is no need for me uh, that's when i succeed that's how i see because whatever he has to learn from me i've already thought from my side and there's nothing more i can teach to him so then i see myself as a successful with that student uh, so i don't that's another thing i uh, probably i should have clarified earlier i don't uh, teach to i don't see teaching as a living uh, i don't do this for money because uh, this is what makes me happy 
and uh, this is what i believe i can be good at i can uh, contribute in a mm-hmm. meaningful way so for me it doesn't matter if a student doesn't like my approach and leaves me I'm perfectly fine to let him go yeah. that that actually brings me on to a question i wanted to ask about like as a coach what motivates you now like what's the thing that like gets you out of bed at five o'clock in the morning but like you know what's the thing that kind of keeps you going through the day yeah basically like uh, for me only few things are very important one i really want to make a difference in my students life uh, in their chess and uh, i just don't want them to become uh, good chess players uh, with uh, uh, a shitty uh, personality uh, i want mm-hmm. them to have a good personality be a good human being as well in the process so i am trying to teach uh, chess through these values they cultivate so they have to uh, so for us uh, like when i work with the students uh, i try to tell them uh, so we, do, we are not playing chess for uh, the rating or the titles or uh, becoming popular or making money all that is kind of a byproduct so it's like uh, the analogy i normally give is like uh, so if i am walking in the sun my shadow will be on the floor and the shadow is basically like the outcomes like whether i make money good money become popular or i have more followers on twitter whatever so that is the reflection and my effort is me i am walking so my shadow should follow me i will not run behind the shadow so all uh, all these things uh, they should come to you we don't go towards them so then why do we put the effort so when we are uh, can kind of dissociate ourselves from uh, these aspects then we can really focus on the core issues which is how can i learn chess more effectively so then we are not worried about i lost today i won today or my rating rating went up or rating went down if we ask most of the players if we take a survey we will be amazed most become happy when their rating goes down most become sad when their rating goes up and down their sadness and happiness level correspondingly varies and as a result most players are not focused on learning the game and getting better uh, i'm not talking about the uh, let's say uh, about 2600 but most of the players they get stuck with these uh, minor issues in my view so the critical issue is how we learn chess and what effort i'm putting to learning this game uh, so the way i try to convince uh, my students is like typically everyone sees like win draw loss something like this mm-hmm. in this hierarchy but i try to tell them it's like win draw and loss something like this and there three different experiences it's like vanilla chocolate strawberry something like this they are just different experiences you go through some of them are pleasant some of them are very unpleasant but if you are in this for long run you will have to face these unpleasant situations quite often and we have no idea when we are going to face these unpleasant situations so we better uh, deal with them maturely as and when that happens so we don't spend much of our time thinking about these things so that's my philosophy regarding <laughs> the results yeah part. that's good yeah and you also mentioned that you know you, you want to bring up good good chess players but also who are kind of good people which does bring me on to something that I wanted to talk to both of you about and it's that we've had a lot of discussion in the chess world recently about cheating which doesn't seem to be going away over the past couple of years and i thought like uh, from the point of view of us, 
of a coach, I thought it would be interesting to kind of talk about cheating because I think, well, I mean, you guys would probably be better to answer, but do you think like coaches have a responsibility to like instill a kind of anti-cheating philosophy amongst students so that from a young age, people kind of think of this as an unacceptable thing? Peter, do you want to go first? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't have much to say. I mean, I have only worked for Vichy and, and Magnus. And uh, I mean, they have their own opinions of that. We have, I mean, discussed these things, but uh, I'm, I might be an influence, but not uh, that strong uh, a one. I mean, I don't know if we'll talk about that, so I'll just mention it now. But for me personally, I mean... I have just tried to avoid uh, being suspected of these things by staying away from playing halls and stuff like this. But maybe you'll handle that separately later. Yes, yeah, so yeah. maybe we should skip to to Ramesh. He can answer the question as well. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. So, as I mentioned, uh, I try to, uh, but I believe this uh, online cheating is kind of a recent phenomenon, probably post pandemic or during the pandemic. This uh, kind mm-hmm. of uh, flared up very much. Uh, that's what I see from my personal experience. Uh, earlier when I was teaching online students, uh, I did not get the feeling that the students were uh, using technology to find better moves during the class. But uh, during the pandemic, I saw like uh, probably four out of ten uh, of my students were uh, using engines to find the moves. And it came as a big uh, shock for me. And uh, I started wondering why suddenly this is happening. Now, Many young children suddenly they had to attend the school uh, curriculum as well through online classes during the pandemic. The, because the classes schools were not open, the learning was happening online, and they became very tech savvy at a very young age. And then they also learned uh, many shortcuts. What was happening in school syllabus curriculum is, if a teacher gives them a topic and asks them to write a essay. Um, many children, my daughter told me, like, they just go to, there are some websites where you can just type the topic and in few seconds you will get a 100 word or 200 word uh, essay. And there are other websites where you can, uh, so everyone of the students from the classroom, they go to this website, they will get the same output that the teacher will easily catch. So there are other websites where you can feed this and it gives the same uh, 100 thing in different words, in 100 different versions. Mm. So the children have learned at a young age to how to navigate the system smartly. And they don't... So initially, I thought probably it's that the ethics of the children have gone to dogs. But the more I talk to those children, why are you doing this? A few answers I got was, one, they are trying to impress the teacher or impress the other students by their clever answers. And also, to they just feel like they're using technology in a more efficient way than others. So they have come up with some clever solutions to the problems. So that's how they see. They don't see it as a cheating issue. So this was a new perception. Um, yeah, it's a little sad that many young children, uh, many youngsters, they've got uh, to see this as an acceptable behavior. I think uh, the role of the society is to educate them. Yeah. And from the other side, and I guess maybe... Peter, you can't really talk too much about this, but I guess when you have a student who is suspicious of someone else cheating or has been accused of cheating themselves in, you know, real games, 
Like that must be quite difficult to do. I mean, I guess. I mean, I don't. I don't know if you've ever had this problem, Ramesh, with your students maybe being suspicious of someone else, and like, how do you deal with that? Because I think that's quite an important thing for like professional players to learn to deal with, because it's probably not going anywhere soon. Yeah. So uh, at the higher level, I believe like uh, it's very essential that uh, FIDE quickly comes up with uh, basic do's and don'ts. Uh, um, we should be in place in all uh, tournaments of uh, beyond a certain level. So mm-hmm. let's say if uh, five or more grandmasters are playing in an open tournament, or, I mean, they should come up with uh, very clear uh, criteria where uh, if so many good players are playing, there should be some minimum uh, um, things in place, uh, put in place. For example, like uh, a 15-minute delay it should be the minimum in most tournaments. And there should be other measures as well. And uh, regarding uh, at the lower level, um, yeah, it is very difficult because many times uh, some it's just a simply paranoia. Like uh, we just suspect something is going wrong and then we react to it. And we form an opinion the player is not strong enough and uh, when they play good chess, we become suspicious. So this is also happening a lot. As a result, a lot of... Uh, Incorrect accusations are flying all around. Um, but there are uh, these are real issues. I do believe there is a lot of cheating happening in over-the-board games as well than uh, is commonly believed. And uh, yeah, so this should be approached uh, from a technical viewpoint. One approach currently it seems to be to prevent people from cheating by delaying live relay and so on. But it should also... Uh, happen that uh, those who are cheating are caught in the process. So mechanisms should be devised. Uh, this can be, this can put people uh, a fear in their mind because if they feel like, okay, I cannot use technology in this tournament, I'll just use it in the next tournament when I can. But if I realize that I may be caught in the act, then I would hesitate more. So it should be tackled from both the viewpoints, I would say. I do have some experience. I mean, when Wishy became the world champ, sorry, when Wishy didn't become the world champion in 2005 in St. Louis, it was won by Tupalov. And there was some, some were making accusations almost openly, I would say. Then Wishy had to play him in a world championship match in 2010. And of course, we were talking about it there. I think generally what our approach was that uh, if Topolov is cheating, uh, we're going to lose. It's as simple as that. I mean, and uh, we basically accept the fact that, that that's how, how it is. I think even at some point after two games, we thought, okay, they hit exactly at the weakest spots in our opening preparations. I mean, we almost started thinking, okay, did they actually have access to our notes uh, or something like that? I mean, you can easily build paranoia, but... Well, Vichy won the match. Uh, things went well with openings from there. Uh, so it, it didn't seem realistic. But of course, paranoia has crept in much earlier in a way. And I think, um, well, Vichy was taking, he had some kind of expert with him that was perhaps sitting in the playing hall looking for signals or something like that. But generally speaking, I think we were just Rick's signature towards it. So it's not a very new thing, but I agree with, uh, with Ramesh that probably um, pandemics has. Uh, pushed a lot to it and now it's um, of course uh, taking a lot of uh... yeah okay so 
we are actually recording on uh, Vishy Anand's birthday. So, happy birthday, Vishy. I'm sure you're listening. Which means it's a good time to talk about, you know, Indian chess in general, which, you know, has, Vishy has had um, some small amount of influence over the last couple of decades. I think he's, you know, most people maybe have never heard of him, but I think he's, you know, he's played <laughs> his part. But I wanted to to ask, like, how do you feel about like the current state of Indian chess, and you know, the candidates is coming up, and like, how do you yeah. feel about that? So the first is uh, happy birthday, Vishy, uh, and uh, yeah, uh, I came to chess uh, the day uh, it was published in newspaper that Vishyanand became a grandmaster, India's first grandmaster. So I read in the newspaper. And they told my father, can I start playing chess? So that's how I came to chess. So I know the kind of influence uh, Anand has uh, had over uh, a generation of uh, Indian children, probably uh, over four decades. Uh, So he has been a tremendous influence, a positive influence uh, for almost all the chess players from India, I would say. I'm very grateful to him. And also he has been a very good mentor to many top players. Like he makes it a point like every time someone achieve something big like becomes a grandmaster let's say he will personally call them wish them and invite them to his house uh, go some games give some advice and so on so he generally cares for uh, the growth of other players from india and he spend makes it a point to spend some time with them personally so that's a very nice gesture i would say and uh, regarding the current uh, three uh, currently uh, we have uh, prague with it in the men's and uh, vitaly in the women's playing in the candidates so and we are just hoping to see Gokesh also uh, coming in to the candidates fold uh, so it's uh, already a good scenario a very healthy scenario I would say and uh, I believe everyone is making preparations all these three players are already uh, started their uh, preparation for the candidates in their own ways and regarding the general scenario in India it's uh, very positive very healthy um, more and more uh, young children are uh, hoping to become strong chess players. But in a way, there is a downside as well because everyone, uh, this, uh, some of these players have set a very high bar. Like, uh, let's say, Gukesh. He became an IM. Gukesh and Prague, they became an international master at the age of 10 and grandmaster at the age of 12. So they have set a very high bar for uh, others to follow, emulate. But uh, most of the parents are, are uh, desperately trying to make their children beat these records. And uh, this kind of puts uh, enormous pressure on uh, these young shoulders. And that's the downside to it. The, they are uh, very ambitious, probably too ambitious for their children's good. Uh, <clears throat> having said that, a uh, lot of tournaments are happening now in India. Uh, more uh, grandmasters uh, have become trainers. So we have uh, uh, many young grandmasters in their early 20s becoming trainers. And I'm sure in the coming years, uh, it will start showing even better outputs. Yeah, and there does seem to be slowly we're getting more tournaments in India. I think after we had the Olympiad last year, yeah, uh, which I guess was the first really big event to be to be in India. Um, there's also the Tata Steel India version which is really cool. And then we're hopefully going to have this round-robin 
very soon, I think, which is maybe going to give Gukesh another chance at the candidate spot. Do you know? Do you have any more information about this? Because I haven't seen it like officially announced anywhere yet. So it's yeah. very interesting. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I believe the event is going to happen. It's going to happen in Chennai. Uh, mm-hmm. The Gukesh Arjun. Uh, uh, I have seen the players list. And it's an impressive field. Uh, probably the average rating is around 2,700. And uh, I believe Linear was supposed to play as well, Dominguez. Uh, but uh, he chose to play Sigis, I believe. Uh, he's uh-huh. going to play in Spain. So to fulfill the norms of having to play abroad. Yeah, I believe the tournament is going to happen. And uh, Sagasha probably will know much better, more details on this. I've seen the players list. It's quite yeah. impressive. Yeah, it's, it should be a very nice event. And I wonder, do you, do you think if Gukesh doesn't win this one, do you think he'll get another tournament in before the end of the year? Because there's still a little bit of time left. I'm not sure. Like, uh, in India, it doesn't happen that way. <laughs> I'm sure uh, what I mean. <laughs> you understand what I mean? I, yeah, I, I just kind of wondered, like, if if they play this tournament and then Gokesh doesn't win, do they just you know lock the doors and say, okay, guys, you can't leave. You know, we've got your passports. You just we just keep playing until <laughs> until things work out. But no, we'll see. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a very interesting part of the cycle. I enjoy the the more chaotic element of you know trying to get as many games as possible before the end of the year. But it does seem like hopefully, you know, for future cycles, they'll have these things a little bit more clear so that people can, you know, plan their schedules and not have to rush around trying to organize a super tournament with, you know, two two weeks notice. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's all of my questions. I don't know if you have anything else, Peter. To add. Yeah, well, first of all, I also want to to wish uh, Vishy a happy birthday. But uh, in connection with Vishy, I mean, how do you see his influence in in uh, for for Indian chess? You see him as, let's say, a role model that showed that uh, well, being the absolute best is possible, or do you also see that he's some that people try to copy his style in in a more direct way, or you said using him as a mentor. Uh, yeah, say. he has been uh, influencing uh, people in different ways. Uh, uh, in all the ways you've mentioned, uh, one uh, is the first grandmaster from our country, and also the first chess uh, world champion. And he has shown uh, the rest that we can uh, be the best player in the world. That has given us a lot of confidence, and uh, I. I remember when I started working with Prague and Vaishali when they were young and I asked them like what do you want to do they said like we want to become world champion and uh, for Prague he was saying I want to become 2900 <laughs> so uh, uh, yeah so he has shown that uh, we can be the best and uh, we can also dare to dream high dream big yeah. and uh, has shown it uh, with his performance consistently and the second is, as a human being also, like, he's very easy to move around, uh, very pleasant, uh, uh, doesn't throw his weight around much. Um, so very nice human being as such. And that is also something many players, uh, if you see with many Indians, they are very quite down to earth and uh, very open to move around. So, and also work ethics, very hardworking. So I remember... Uh, um, when he became the world champion uh, the following year when uh, Topalo won the 
of tournament. Uh, then when uh, Anand came home uh, just after two or three days from Mexico, uh, he so myself and a few of my friends we were having a training camp. Few of uh, fellow grandmasters we were having a training camp in Chennai, and he called uh, Suresh Kanguli and asked what is he doing. And he said, we are having a training camp in uh, our place. Then he said, why don't you all come to my home? So we all went, some five, six grandmasters. And uh, he started immediately seeing chess. We were analyzing chess for some four, five hours. So he, he is a guy who just became a world champion two, three days ago. And he's still uh, hungry for more chess. So his work, work ethics has been uh, very impressive as well. That's uh, something we are also trying to learn ourselves. Yeah, that's very impressive. Yeah, I think that's that's everything then. So, thank you very much for joining us today, Ramesh. It was yeah, very interesting. My pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. And good good luck with the training camp, both for the result in the candidates, but also for the the long term goals. I mean, yeah. So, uh, thank you, Peter. Uh, yeah. Sounds sounds great. Thanks a lot. Yeah. yeah. Thanks a lot. Have a nice day. Thank you very much. Cheers. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye.